1: Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 151, recorded January 2nd, 2014.
0: So, as everybody might have noticed, during the holidays we kind of uh, leapfrogged a couple of weeks where we were only releasing new episodes every other week. But now, hopefully we'll be back on a, a weekly schedule. Right. Well, you know, you got to take some time off, be with the family and
1: everything, but uh, we'll hopefully be uh, keeping up with production from here forward right. for, the, for the great new year of 2014. Can you believe this? 2014. Right. Amazing.
0: Yes. And as we start 2014, we only have a few more ep- issues or episodes left of the 1995 era of Star Trek and how it... Uh, winds down with both DC Comics and Malibu. Right. And so today we'll be doing a couple specials from 1995. Right. Specials number 3 for Next Gen and Original Series. Right. Cool. So, and uh, you know these are these were basically basically two issues each, right? They both seem to be 20 something page plus stories and there's two in each book. So. Right. What looked on paper as being, you know, kind of a, a quick episode ended up being a four-issue episode, so yeah, bear pretty, with us.
1: Pretty beefy. As I was getting through the, uh, the second story of Taz, which is the first one I did because I'm synopsizing them, um, I was struck
0: by... Uh, this is taking a while. <laughs> <laughs> beefy. Yeah, I tried to uh, be a little brief in my synopsis just because... Nothing was really happening, and uh, <laughs> I, was I, was like, I was like, "By the time we get to this story, people are going to be done with us." So I'm going to move it along.
1: Okay, well, good.
0: But I do like how all four of these stories, or at least three of the four stories, you know, really have a callback to previous episodes of various different um, franchises of, of Star Trek, which I thought was was nice.
1: Right. Especially uh, in the two Taz stories. Right. So,
0: And ironically enough, they seem to be hitting the same one. But
1: Yeah, and not only obvious from a... Um, they actually cover some of the characters that were in the TV show, but also thematically. Mm-hmm. So uh, the second story in the uh, Taz special... Is there, there's a theme going on there, which is very uh, is is very clearly reused from uh, another Taws episode. Right. So we'll talk more about that when we get there, but right. there's reuse, but you know, pretty good reuse.
0: Yeah, I like that one. That was yeah. Good one. Yeah. All right. Well, let's you know that's enough uh, chit chat. Enough. Enough of uh, you know alluding. Let's just jump into it.
1: Okay, that sounds good. So I could do the. The uh, Toss special. It's special number three, 1995. T- the first story is titled Unforgiven. Published date uh, is winter of 1995. Writer is Jan, uh, Michael Jan Friedman. Penciler Steve Irwin. Inker, Jamie Palmiati. Letterer, Phil Felix. Colorist, Buzz Setzer. Editor, Margaret Clark. The cover shows what at first, quick glance, looks like a Hardy Boys mystery cover, except for a young-looking Kirk and a dark-haired young guy in a Starfleet Academy shirt on instead of uh, Frank and Joe Hardy. Also different uh, is a dark, menacing figure confronting them and carrying a futuristic-looking pistol uh, with a rather unfamiliar shape. The background is not distinctive, but it gives the feeling of being uh, out in some kind of isolated desert setting. Rescue seems unlikely for our boys. At the bottom of the cover is the text, plus Echoes of Yesterday, which tells us we have a second story in this issue. The story opens with Kirk on a planet, out in a desert setting, in civilian clothes, He is making a personal log entry stating he's back on Daxor 4 after 20 years. Back then, it was not a Federation colony, but just a Federation possession. It turned out to be rich in dilithium deposits, which no one knew at the time, or they would not have allowed people to camp here, such as Kirk and his brother Sam did. Kirk is called by his nephew Peter, and he replies saying he will be right there. Now that Sam is dead, he treasures everything he left behind, especially his boys. Kirk returns with the boy to their camp, where an uncooperative tent awaits. When they arrive, they join Peter's two brothers, Jason and Adam, spinning their wheels in tent setup duty. All three boys seem to be weathering the storm of losing both parents well, but Kirk is less sure about Jason. Jason is more like Kirk than the others. He is stubborn and wanted to finish the tent his way. As Kirk fixes the tent, he thinks about how Jason has applied to Starfleet Academy and is so far following in his footsteps. He wonders if he is doing it for all the right reasons. With the tent fixed, Adam asks Kirk about Romulans. Kirk tells them about their first encounter in the Taws episode, Balance of Terror. That was touch-and-go due to their cloaking and plasma weapons tech. Then Kirk mentions that they have learned more about their cloaking tech, which alludes to events in the episode, The Enterprise Incident. Kirk notices Jason is nowhere in sight. The boys say he is probably on one of his long walks. Kirk goes off to find him. After searching for a long time, Kirk sees Jason belly down on a rock outcropping. When Kirk joins him, Jason briefs him on the very interesting discoveries made. He points Kirk at what appears to be an armored contingent of Orions preparing to move out in armored ground vehicles. Jason conjectures they are going to attack the colony for their stores of dilithium. Kirk says they need to get back to alert the authorities, but Jason says they need to find out more about what the Orions are going to attack before they make their report. Jason says those ground vehicles should be useless against the colony's defensive systems. Jason recklessly rushes down to the vehicles that start to move. Kirk tries to stop him, telling him it's too dangerous, but he won't listen. When they both get... Near ground level, they see the attack vehicles begin to disappear. They seem to have some kind of cloaking devices similar to the Romulans. They conjecture the Orions must have approached the planet from the planet's side opposite to the colony to avoid detection, then transported the ground vehicles and troops as close as they dared to. Cloaked, the vehicles will slip past the defenses and take the colony by surprise they both recklessly run up to one of the armored vehicles to examine it more closely. As they retreat from the vehicle to sound the alarm, they are spotted and run for the foothills the way they came. They are quickly surrounded and have no choice but to attempt to fight their way to freedom. They are quickly knocked to the ground and taken captive. They recognize Kirk and take them both as hostages to use them as leverage in case they need it. In the dark hot cargo compartment of the lead armored vehicle, Jason and Kirk talk about their predicament. Kirk counsels Jason not to dwell on his stupidity that got them caught. He says they need to relax and focus on how they can get out of this and warn the colony. After a while, the vehicle stops. The door is opened and Peter and Adam are tossed in. All four of them are now prisoners. No chance that Adam and Peter could have gone for help when Kirk and Jason did not return. The vehicles get moving again, and Adam talks about how the Orions invaded their campsite. However, before they were captured, Adam stashed a communicator in his boot. The Orions did not think to look there for weapons. They figured the communicator's signal can't penetrate the vehicle's armored hull, unfortunately. After a while, Jason says he has an idea. He wants to use the communicator, but not in the way you'd think. He figures the cloak works by sending its energies through the hull of the vehicles. He wants to use the communicator to interfere with those energies. Applying the communicator's power source to the hull might do the trick. Kirk agrees it could work, but there are risks. The energies released would likely make their hot prison even hotter and the transstator in the communicator could overload and blow up. Considering their proximity in an enclosed space, they would likely die if it exploded. Jason is the first to say he is willing to take the risk, since the Orions are likely to hurt and kill a significant number of colonists to get the dilithium crystals. As the odd billow of desert dust moves towards the colony, the scene shifts to the office of the colony director. She is dealing with typical minutia on a typical day, when one of her people enters in hurriedly and directs her attention to the armored vehicles approaching the colony perimeter. She orders him to raise shields. Her assistant says he will do that and also power up the phasers. She is going to find out what is going on before they shoot anything, but they both want to be ready for anything. In the cargo hold, Kirk is holding wires from the communicator against the hull of the vehicle. It is sparking and getting very hot. They don't know if it's working, but they need to keep trying. Suddenly the vehicle is knocked into the air and lands on its side. The impact opens the door and they scramble out. Before they can get far, the Orion commander calls to Kirk with his weapon pointed at him. That stops Kirk in his tracks. Kirk tells the Orion he needs them for hostages more now than ever. The Orion says he needs only one of them as a hostage. The Orion commander realizes that there are only three of them visible. When he asks where the dark-haired one is, he is knocked to the ground by Jason, who descends from above. Jason had not exited from the vehicle yet, and since the cargo hold door is now oriented above the hatch that the commander used, gravity gave Jason's attack quite a wallop. Jason tells them all to run as he lands with the Orion on the ground. After the initial impact, Jason's attack on the Orion commander is over as the much stronger being shrugs off the boy and levels his weapon at Jason. As the Orion states he will get his vengeance on the boy, Kirk reaches him and knocks him out clean, while saying, That's my nephew you're talking about, and we Kirk stick together. In the colony control room, they cease the phaser attack, since the armored vehicles are disabled. Their sensors pick up mostly Orion lifeforms, so they figure the Orions were after the dilithium stores unexpectedly they also pick up four human life forms later in the colony building with the orions locked up kirk is speaking to spock telling him his leave will have to be extended a few more days the camping trip was interrupted and must be completed he promised his nephews spock wishes him well and terminates the connection jason enters and asks uncle jim if by any chance he might have thought of using the communicators before he had jason quotes something kirk said in the armored vehicles which in retrospect almost seemed like uncle jim might have been coaxing the idea out of jason kirk admits to nothing as they leave the room to join the other two boys as the four smiling kirks make their way to continue their interrupted camping trip the captain thinks what a fine officer jason will make someday the end Kirk and his boys, Kirk and the boys, yeah, yeah, it's too bad, uh, you know, given his captainly duties, he couldn't do more be with the boys more, um, right, he'd make a heck of a substitute father
0: he would, I always enjoy the books and the you know the novels and the comics that that show him interacting with the, the kids mm-hmm. um, I always enjoy those books or, right. or those stories, but you know, I, and I think we've talked about it before. My big beef, and this this story again falls right in line with that, is why can't they agree on what the three kids' names are? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, because, what? Yeah,
1: one's well, Peter. Okay,
0: right. Well, Peter was the one. I think there was actually a scene in the original uh, see the original series. Uh, what was that an operation annihilation Inali- operation operation in- that had peter in it um it was cut i think I've actually seen oh, a photo okay. of kirk and and the boy this the little boy named you know Peter sitting in the captain's chair with a with a little tiny gold tunic on oh <laughs> um but so they it seems like they always get peter's name right but the other two boys uh are are always different ah so and what's funny is that d c comics 1995, you know, here is special number three, you know, just a few months earlier, maybe at most Star Trek number 74, which also came out in 1995 had the flashback. It was Kirk getting his command and how he kind of messed things up with Carol and all that stuff. Remember that Uh, we did it a long time ago, back in like episode 50 with Brian. Okay. Right. Uh Uh, But in that one, you know, there's the little boys when they're small and Sam's still alive, and, and they're introduced as Peter, Brett, and Robbie. Oh, really?
1: <laughs> That's <laughs> totally different. Well, almost totally different. Uh, right, and
0: then here we are, same year, same publisher. You should double-check this stuff. Right. They're now called Peter, Jason, and Adam.
1: So in the, so in the original episode, I don't remember them going into that much detail.
0: Right, I think they. I think originally Peter lived on the planet with them. He had right. the the thing on his back too, but he he lived. But they cut all those scenes out. Oh, okay. And uh, and but it's always kind of been there, you know. People who write this stuff had access to the original scripts and kind of knew the backstory of Sam, that he had three kids. First one's named Peter, and it may not. I'm sure it didn't name the other two kids, but right. It just—it's odd that every publisher comes up with their own name for the other three kids. Right,
1: right. And well, Jason's a pretty major character in this book, in this story. Right, right. I mean, he really does look like a—you uh, know, like a potential young Indiana Jones kind of—you uh, know—successor to the Kirk uh, storyline.
0: Yeah, definitely in this story, yeah. but ironically enough, in, in all the other stories that that delve with Sam's kids, um, right. there was some novels called like Last Stand, Sarek, one of Shatner's own story uh, novels, uh, Avenger. Mm-hmm. You know, all of those reference Peter as being the one that you know follows in Kirk's footsteps and becomes right. the you know to to live up to the Kirk name, right? So you know, because I've read all those books, you know, that's the way I see Peter, and and in this story, you know, Peter is not like that. He's he's kind of the, you know, even though he's the older kid, he's the one that doesn't really seem to know what's going on and needs his younger brother to show him the way.
1: Well, I thought Peter was the youngest one.
0: Did no, I get Pete, that wrong? It, it, it's kind of unclear, because reading it, it, it didn't, it said Adam and Peter are doing fine, but, you know, Jason's in the middle, but it It doesn't say which one's older, does it? Well, okay, so Peter is the one that comes to find Kirk,
1: and he seems to be the youngest one, the red-haired one.
0: Let me look.
1: And then when they go back to the campsite, it seems like it's his two older brothers. But whatever.
0: Well, I'll tell you the truth. When I read through it the first time, I thought the same thing. I thought Peter was the younger one. Well. But then – And what, what
1: dissuaded you from that?
0: Uh, just looking at page three, it just it doesn't really say who's who. It just gives their name.
1: Well, okay, but on we the first page, on
0: the first page,
1: third cell. Oh yeah, no, it says right, right here, right. Peter.
0: Okay, yep, you're right. So and yeah, here guy. Peter's the youngest one, but in all the other expanded, right? Years, Peter's the oldest one. Right. Exactly. I mean, he's the one they're focusing on. Right. Because right. even in that, even in that Star Trek seventy four, Peter was the older one. And Robbie was the little one. Oh. So. And Robbie doesn't even he, exist here. Doesn't even exist. Oh, my God. And all the, other, all the other expanded universe usually uses the names Peter, Alexander, and Julius. as. The oh, character. my God. Alexander and Julius. Jeez. It's funny, but there is one book that uses the name Craig. Nah. That's because <laughs> the little boy who played Peter, his name was Craig. So I don't yeah. know if it was a mistake or it was just an homage to the, the little boy who played Peter in, that, in those deleted scenes. Hmm. Anyways, well, I, I think I talked about this when we did 74, and yeah. I'll talk about it again when they come up. I think uh, Peter makes an appearance in uh, some Wild wow. Storm comics, so we'll talk about him again, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, and matter of fact, who knows? We might even talk about him in another story today. You sure. never know.
0: Hmm. Hmm. So anyways, so uh, aside from that, what would you think of the book? I, I thought it was fine.
1: I, I think, obviously, Jason is stupid. I mean, stupid. running... He's stupid. He's, he's running down to the uh, Orion tanks. And then what's even worse is Kirk and Jason run up to the tanks. It's like, oh my gosh, what's wrong with you guys?
0: They had to touch him.
1: <laughs> no they didn't have to touch them bunch of idiots hey let's go and get caught <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> and they were jeez that was dumb and it's like Kirk is the one saying oh you know as he's running down you know from, from their high precipice that they're able to see everything safely uh, you know he you know he's saying Jason it's too dangerous you can't go down and then what does he do they both run up to the
0: darn things jeez anyway all right. So since we now know that he has a communicator in his boot, why doesn't he tell Jason that they're on page uh, six? You know, hey, let me pull out my boot, fe- uh, my boot communicator and contact, contact him. But instead, he says, "Let's go back to the tent so that we can contact the authorities." Why? You well, okay. A boot communicator.
1: Well, okay. Kirk doesn't, and Jason doesn't. It's the other brother, right?
0: I thought it was The oldest brother.
1: Ah! Wow. I, I don't think it was Kirk. I thought, I thought it was the older brother that was able to grab one when, when the Orions came into their, uh, their campsite. Mm. Anyway, whatever. It's dark in there. They're all in that, that thing, but...
0: Okay. No, you're right. It was the gold shirt was throwing me off. Right. And it's all dark
1: and stuff. So it's hard to see, but I I'm I pretty sure it's the uh it's the older dark haired uh
0: brother. Alright, well then my comments are devalidated. Devalidated in your face. Yeah, because they're on page sixteen and it, it is I thought it was Kirk, but upon closer viewing it is definitely not Kirk.
1: Yeah, and so it makes a little bit more sense, you know. Sure, sure, sure. The older kid, somebody rushed you know he 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 heard they were had strangers in the campsite so he was had the chance to grab something but anyway so it's like okay so (laughs) they're going to grab a few wires out of the communicator and they're going to be able to disrupt the um the invisibility cloak yep so okay that's hard enough to, to to swallow but wouldn't you think that would only affect one of the vehicles? I mean, do all the vehicles have their own invisibility generators? Or is it one generating it for everybody? Because they didn't say that.
0: Right. However,
1: um, so you'd think, you know, if they had their own independent invisibility generators, you'd think only the lead tank that Kirk is in and the boys are in would be the one that would be visible. But they show it pretty clearly coming up on the colony, and they're all visible.
0: Right. Yeah, I, I agree, and you would think that it would only be for a very short amount of time. Because, I mean, how much power? H- how much power does that hold? Right. And how much power are you really having to put through the hole? Exactly. It, it's a thick hole because they've already said it's too thick to send a signal. Communications of... through. So. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that part was a little wishy washy, and I thought it was funny how much smoke or how much dust these things are are. Kicking up, exactly.
1: So what do you what do you think? There's a haboob or something coming towards the colony or something? Because <laughs> you got this big dust up of uh you know desert dust coming oddly enough at the colony.
0: Right. And and once the once all the ships became visible, don't you think one of the Orions there in, in another tank might look over and say, <laughs> Oh, I, I can see. I can see him. Hey, and if, if they can see
1: you, then they should be able to see me.
0: <laughs> when the phasers start firing and stuff, it's like, oh my god! Yeah, I mean, we—Orion's might not be the smartest guys, but no, they should be able to figure that one out.
1: Yeah, and I think that captain looks like he's a reject from the Gold Key days. <laughs> You know, there's just something about the look of the face, the really skinny little beard and stuff, and just the, you know, just the facial features. It just, it's just screaming at me, Gold Key.
0: Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. I was thinking Ming the Merciless from ah. Flash Gordon Comics, but... There you go. Yes. I could see that, too. Yeah. Anyways.
1: Yeah, I really don't have any, any more to say.
0: Uh, I guess I don't really have anything else to say, except I liked Kirk's shirt. It just looked like a, like a t-shirt. But it still had kind of the Starfleety logo on it.
1: Yeah, oh, and it's gold, and it's got the uh, you know the black thing
0: around the collar,
1: and uh, yeah.
0: All uh, right, maybe it, I'm sorry. It's not it's not Kirk's. It was uh, Peters that I like. Oh, so. you like Peters? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Sorry about that. The young, the youngest one that has kind of a jumpsuit <sighs> on. Oh, let me rephrase that. Jason. Jason. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yes, Jason's red shirt that has like the little Starfleet or kind of a Starfleet swoosh on it sideways yeah. a little bit. And it says SFA on the shoulder or on, right. the, on the sleeve. Right. Yeah, I liked it. It looked yeah. like, you know, like what a teenager would wear to right. show their support su- support to like a university or something like
1: that. Right, right. Kind of an athletic thing. Yeah, I liked it. Yeah, I, I thought the artwork was was good. You know, decent, nothing objectionable about it. And sometimes they got, they did a good job with some of the faces at times. And uh, I, I think the artwork was was good.
0: Right. I just didn't like the sweat scenes. Oh yeah, it always just looked like they had a bunch of warts or spikes on their face or something.
1: <laughs> oh my God, they're cactus people. Right.
0: <laughs> yeah. All right. And then you know, maybe my biggest complaint and there's no way you can argue about this it it almost ruined the whole book for me what we're talking about orions and there's not a single orion girl in the whole thing
1: Wow, good point no orion slave girl
0: no dancers i mean how do we know these are orions without that
1: exactly you need a belly dancing uh gorgeous green girl Exactly.
0: I, I mean, that's uh, I, maybe I'm just being you know stereotypical, you know, yeah, you are. Just uh lumping all orions together, but you know they they've bred me that way. they've conditioned me to be that way., <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, good point. I missed that too.
0: So that was a joke, obviously, but yeah, that was it. That was my last comment.
1: Cool. Well, let me get on to the second story. Because that's pretty beefy, too. And uh, story number two is Echoes of Yesterday. Writer is Mark A. Altman. Penciler is Ken Save. Inker is Ron Boyd. Letterer, Willie Schubert. Colorist, Dave Graff. Or Graffy, probably. Editor is Margaret Clark. The Enterprise is in orbit around Earth for the inauguration of the new Federation president. Prior to the ceremony... Kirk takes an opportunity to beam down to his childhood home in Iowa for a visit. He says he has business there that is long overdue. The coordinates he provides to Scotty put him down in a wheat field next to his home. He is greeted by a man named Ezekiel, who Kirk apparently knows very well. Ezekiel addresses him as Admiral, but Kirk corrects him saying he's back to being a captain. Kirk says it's a long story. Ezekiel says, it must involve an ambassador's wife, knowing Jim. Inside the Kirk family home, Jim is struck by how little the house or the property has changed. Ezekiel asks Kirk what brings him home after so many years. Kirk says to see Ezekiel, of course, but Ezekiel immediately says, Kirk came back to see his brother. Ezekiel tells Kirk to do what he came here for, while there's still light. Time enough for stories after dinner. The scene cuts to a gravestone etched with George Samuel Kirk's name. Born September 7th, 2229. Died April 13th, 2267. Kirk thinks about all the people he has lost over the years. David, his son. Gary, his friend. Captain Garavick. Today, Kirk grieves for his brother. He misses Sam. Kirk's reverie is interrupted unexpectedly by his nephew, Peter, who, last he heard, still lived in the Deniva colony. Peter explains he is on Earth to visit his father and mother's gravesite for the anniversary. Kirk invites Peter up to the ship for a visit, since he will have to leave early tomorrow morning for San Francisco. Peter takes a rain check, but says he will make a point of seeing Uncle Jim again soon. The next afternoon, Scotty beams McCoy and Spock in their dress uniforms down to San Francisco for the inauguration. The ceremony takes place, and the reception begins. Kirk is invited to a poker game, but takes a pass since he already has plans. McCoy conjectures with Carol, perhaps? Kirk leaves the reception and returns to his quarters in San Francisco. He passes a retinal scan to gain entry to his home but not long after he is addressed by his nephew Peter. Peter has been waiting in the dark for Kirk with two very large alien companions. Peter gets down to business quickly and tells Kirk he needs the secret to time travel. He says he wants to use time travel to save the race of his two large alien companions. Kirk says he cannot help Peter since the secret of time travel is one of the Federation's most closely guarded secrets. The ramifications of traveling back in time are enormous and dangerous. The two large aliens raise their hands and a yellow, greenish glow is cast over Kirk. They say Kirk will help them. Kirk is clearly affected by them, but shouts, No! and collapses to the ground. The scene cuts to Carol Marcus, who was at the side of Kirk's unconscious body. As McCoy and Spock Beam into Kirk's home. McCoy gives the captain a low-dosage shot of cordrazine. Kirk comes, too, with a fierce headache. While helping Kirk into a chair, they ask Kirk what happened. Kirk says he will tell them, but first Carol must leave. What he needs to discuss involves Federation security that she is not cleared for. She leaves pissed off at yet another rejection by Kirk. The captain tells Spock and McCoy about Peter coming to him with two Similians. Peter wants to go back in time and prevent the power reactor from blowing up that poisoned the Simillian homeworld. Spock gives more historical details and pins the blame for the calamity on the Simillians' own xenophobia. They refused multiple overtures for Federation membership and aid prior to the event. Spock says the Semelians are a telepathic race and must have extracted the time and travel information from Kirk's mind. Kirk says he only knows the basic idea of how time travel works, not the exact complex computations to actually make it work. Spock says the Simmelians are an intellectually advanced race that could have completed the difficult computations based on what they got from Kirk's mind. Kirk says they must be stopped, just as Ohura contacts him from the Enterprise. She tells Kirk he has a message from Admiral Cartwright. The coded message tells Kirk the Similians have achieved time travel. Kirk meets briefly with Admiral Cartwright, who tells him the Venus Observatory has detected a Similian ship heading directly towards our sun. A short time later, it disappeared. Kirk is ordered to use any and all means to stop that ship. The Enterprise travels to a star system close to Sumilia, and uses the breakaway method to travel back in time a day before the accident that rendered Sumilia uninhabitable. They enter orbit around the planet on the other side of the solar system from Sumilia. That should keep them undetected by the rogue ship and the Sumilian authorities on the planet itself. For now, they will wait and observe. The time-traveling similean ship finally arrives, and the Enterprise tells them to stand down. They refuse and fire upon the Enterprise. Kirk gives orders to disable the similean ship's shields. Then they snare it with a tractor beam and board the ship. Kirk tells the two similians they will have to return to the Enterprise. McCoy says no human is aboard the ship. Kirk demands to know where Peter is. The Somalians say Peter is on his own journey. Peter's journey may be successful where theirs was not. They say Kirk may not want to stop Peter's journey. The reactor blows. Uhura reports numerous distress calls from Somalia. Kirk regretfully orders Uhura not to respond they beam back to the Enterprise. In a conference room, they try to work out where Peter is and what his journey may be. There is no indication that he is anywhere near Sommelia. If he still intends to interfere with the past, he must also be stopped. After long discussions, Kirk asks for confirmation of the current date. The computer states, Stardate 3287.1 Kirk orders maximum warp to Deneva. Spock confirms the Enterprise of this time period will not arrive at Deneva for another two hours, 11 minutes. Kirk says he will beam down alone, and if he does not make contact with the ship within 90 minutes, they are to return to the future without him. Spock and McCoy object. The parasitic infestation will likely take his life the way it took his brother's. McCoy tells Jim maybe he should let his brother and wife live. They are just two people. They may not affect the current timeline at all. Spock comes down squarely on the other side of the argument, saying regulations are clear in this situation, and even just one person has the potential to change the future, as they are all quite aware. Kirk thanks McCoy for what he is saying, and transports down to just outside Sam's research lab. Kirk makes his way in and meets his brother Sam who says, so that is what I'll look like in 20 years. Peter is there too and has told his father that assassins from the future are coming for him. Kirk embraces his brother one last time and tells him that is not true and that he is destined to die this day in this lab the victim of a parasite attack. Sam shouts for Jim to look out and shoves him aside. A parasite that came through an air vent has attached himself to Sam's torso. Sam goes down and Peter, holding a phaser, races to his father's side. Peter begs Jim to get his medical officer to remove the parasite, and he is about to do it when Sam says no and grabs Peter's hand. The phaser goes off and hits the parasite and Sam sam is dead and kirk shouts to peter that they have to get out of the lab it's crawling with parasites as kirk calls for transport using his communicator peter turns phaser in hand and tells uncle jim he can still save his mother he has to try peter is hit square in the back by a parasite and drops his phaser which discharges into kirk everything goes black for kirk When he awakens, he is in the Enterprise sickbay. Kirk asks where his nephew is. McCoy says, your nephew? We received your message and beamed you up. Spock tells Kirk, as per his orders, they have returned to the future, and not a second too soon, to escape detection by the Enterprise of that time period. They cannot go back. After a long, sad silence, Kirk says, it's okay. They did the right thing. He lost his nephew and his brother for a second time. Cut to the past. The Enterprise is on approach to Deneva, responding to distress calls. They witness a small ship heading into the Denovan sun. Spock reports they are too far distant to grab the ship with tractor beams. It is burning up. Inside the burning ship is Peter, sweating and ragged-looking at the controls. All he can say is, I'm free. The end.
0: I love that ending. That was a cool ending. That was a very cool ending. Because when you watch Annihilation, what's it called again? Assignment Oper- Annihilation. Operation Annihilate. Operation Annihilation. Excuse me. Annihilate. Yeah, so you see that guy flying into the sun, but you never know who he is. Exactly. Now you know. Exactly. So it's, it's
1: very cool in multiple ways they've dovetailed this story nicely with
0: that original Taz story. Yeah, kind of a uh, Trouble with Tribbles, or no, uh, Trials and Tribulations type oh, the DS9? setup that DS9 did. There you go. Like that. And of
1: course, the other thing that's kind of cool about this story is not only do they have the, the obvious direct hearkening back to the Taz episode Operation Annihilate, but obviously, thematically, this is identical to City on the Edge of Forever. So right. Kirk needs to let somebody die that he loves, his own brother and, uh, and, and sister-in-law, to preserve the timeline. So, Pretty harsh. Harsh. Oh, strong right. emotions, emotional uh, things going on here. And again, Kirk does the right thing, even though, wow. You let a whole planet die. Wow. That's pretty harsh. That's pretty harsh, too.
0: See, it was a, it was a fixed point in time. You can't <laughs> change a fixed point in time.
1: Yeah, well, a whole planet load of people uh, that, that weren't supposed to live, if you let them live, <laughs> you know, something's going to change. You know, so, if Edith yeah. Keeler did it alone, imagine what would happen if a whole planet full of people.
0: Yeah, I never bought the whole Edith Keeler somehow causes the Nazis to win. Nah. <laughs> blah blah blah. I mean uh, <laughs> well. it's like, that's stretching it a little bit, Spock. Well, it's stretching things.
1: But if somebody I mean, if somebody was able to delay the US's entry into World War II, I mean that that might have done it. Might have done it. Right. Still delaying I mean so one person being able to delay entry into World War Two. Mm, yeah,
0: I agree. But uh, but anyways, I I enjoyed the story uh, even though I did not like how they changed Peter's character so drastically from the way he's always portrayed in all the other media.
1: Right. Well, he's a young kid in the previous episode, so you can't, or previous story in the issue, so you can't point at that too much no
0: no i'm more talking about all the other novels and stuff that have peter in it you know as an adult joining starfleet you know all that other stuff which obviously this does not fit into that continuity so i haven't watched or i have not read those stories at all no
1: idea about any of this stuff Mm. um so basically that version of peter and what he did is is pretty much the same thing as to the trajectory that Jason was on in, exactly. the, in the earlier story. Right. Okay. Cool. And he was... Cool. So um, a young Indiana Jones kind of, <laughs> you know, or, uh, or Shia LaBeouf in that last uh, Crystal Skull one.
0: I uh, mean, you know? why'd you bring him up? I
1: had to. So the next generation, you know, coming in and picking up the mantle from Kirk. So
0: right, but not in this issue. No, he's is a uh, crazed, grief-stricken young man who still set out to try to save his father.
1: Exactly, and mother who died a very long time ago. So
0: right. So I mean. Yeah, I didn't like that part. I mean, so twenty. I mean, yes, it's terrible that your mother and father died, but I don't know. It seems like a lot of work and and really out of character. And again, I'm taking his character from other stuff, so it's right. a little unfair.
1: Yeah, it is. Because I had no problem with it. Yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: except for the th- except for the fact that the kid has to realize the ramifications of this. I mean, especially the whole planet. Right. You know, you know, but whatever. I, I do kind of like, although I, when when McCoy started suggesting that, hey Jim, maybe you should let your your brother and and sister in law live, I was kind of surprised when he started talking about that. But then it's like, okay, so we got the point counterpoint going on, you know. So McCoy takes the one side of it. Spock takes the other side of it. Cool. So we have our little debate going on. So, okay, fine. But at first when he started saying this like, what's wrong with you, McCoy?
0: What are you doing? Well, in City of the Edge of Forever, McCoy kind of shows up right at the end when, when right. Edith is getting run over, right?
1: Well, he he's been in he's been in 1920 whatever it was or 30 whatever it was. Uh, he'd been there a while, but yes, he 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 just sees and re- and recognizes Kirk and Spock just before she gets killed.
0: Right. And he and is he the one that kind of holds Kirk back
1: or no 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 it's McCoy who tries to
0: save Edith Keeler right and, and Kirk it's Kirk, Kirk that holds back. Yeah. McCoy right. back right. Do you know what you did, Jim? He knows, right. Doctor. So I mean, yeah. it is. His comments here fit in line with, with, with that story a lot, too. Well, yeah, but
1: he didn't realize the importance of either, either Keeler. He had no idea that she was going to be the person, if she survived, that would delay um, the U.S.'s entry into World War II. That's right. stuff that Spock and Kirk know, but McCoy doesn't.
0: Right, but they don't know. Spock McCoy, nobody here knows what would happen if, if Sam lived.
1: Well, yeah, yeah, I agree with that. But, I mean, especially with their experience – <laughs> you know, uh, you know, with you know, the guardian of forever and whatever. I mean, like I alluded to that a little bit in there. I mean, they all know that even one person could potentially. I mean, what about when Homer Simpson made his time machine out of his toaster and went back in time and sneezed on a dinosaur?
0: How did he do that? I haven't seen that episode.
1: What? You haven't? Ah. It was one of the uh, Halloween specials. Uh,
0: I, I love the Futurama episode, though, where they go back in time and Fry accidentally kills his grandfather before his dad was conceived, so he has to then he has to then be his own grandpa. If you know what I'm
1: saying. <laughs> oh, that's nasty.
0: <laughs> I I bit. don't
1: I don't remember that episode. <laughs> that's great. So he goes and finds his grandmother.
0: Yeah, he has to go and pretend to be his grandfather. Oh, boy. In Uh, the, uh, you know. In the carnal sense. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Anyways. So do you think he was trying to slingshot around the sun or was he just trying to um, uh, just kill himself there on those last three panels? Oh, well, now I that think... we know it was Peter, and now that we know that that Peter knows every all about slingshotting around the sun
1: oh no, what do you mean the end yeah no, he no he knows about the parasites because he lived through it, he right. knows that sunlight will kill the uh parasite, so he's flying towards the the sun to to kill the parasite that's inside of him,
0: right but also. You know, Oh, you think he's trying to do the slingshot thing? I don't know if he's trying to, but I mean, it is, that is how he got there. That's true. Well, that's an
1: interesting point. Maybe that more explains... Because the thing is, Peter knows that sunlight can kill them. So yeah. I thought he was just taking that knowledge and using it to, to get rid of the parasite, even though it was going to kill him. Right. But maybe you're right. That's an interesting point. The only thing is, how big? A, how big a cra- craft did he have? I mean,
0: a warp capable ship or something that could? Oh well, yeah, could Do this
1: the slingshot thingy.
0: Well, it has to be a warp capable. Whether it can do the slingshot thingy uh, or not, I don't know. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, he did. The he the, got there. Those aliens dropped him off somewhere, and he got there. Right. So. Right. Right. Okay. Anyways, uh, all in all, I enjoyed this book. I like the uh, you know you can't mess with time type storyline. Right. And I like that they didn't, because a lot of times they'll go the whole book saying we can't do it, and then at the end they do it. Do it anyways.
1: <laughs> right. They they didn't compromise on the um, on the rules.
0: Right. right.
1: Even though they were directly responsible for a whole planet of aliens dying, but
0: well, they weren't responsible for them dying. They were responsible. But they could have saved allowing them. them to die. They could have saved them. Damn it.
1: Right, a whole planet full of people crying for help, and you just don't do anything.
0: That's tough. That's that's harsh. It's a tough call. It's a tough call.
1: That's 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 why you know you got to have the right guy in the captain's chair. <laughs> all right.
0: So my last comment, if I may, is I like Sam's first interaction or all of his interaction with Kirk. I thought that was good. Oh, you know, he's like, oh, this is what I'm going to look like in twenty years, and right like that. I, <laughs> I enjoyed that. He had a sense of humor. Right. Even though he had been misled as to why Kirk and Peter were there, but... Right. He took it all in stride pretty well, I thought. Oh, yeah. And ends up
1: doing the right thing and having his, his son's phaser kill him. No, son. So, I mean, that, he was, that was by plan, right? That wasn't just random chance he happened to grab Peter's uh, gun hand.
0: Oh, and he he allowed himself to get shot. Okay. I I didn't catch that. But maybe you're right. He is holding it. Yeah. And he is saying no when he's talking about trying to save him. I will not allow that, Jimmy.
1: I won't. No. We must preserve the timeline. Uh, I'm not so sure I'd be so quick to do that. It's like, yeah, get McCoy down here. (laughs) (laughs) This thing really hurts.
0: Right. Yeah. I'd be like, beam me back after the planet, take me to the future, and just, you know, say I died. <laughs> exactly! <laughs> just take me back with you to the future.
1: Right. Anyway. So we could mess up the future future.
0: Oh, you can mess up the future future, you just can't mess up the past past. Because it hasn't happened yet. Sure. But he Has, can still... hasn't can... happened for you yet, but it's happened for somebody that's in the future. Exactly! <laughs> exactly exactly my point so in that regards yeah you know there was the movie time cop <laughs> <Van> Damme, <I'm laughs> oh sure you absolute that that was a classic but they made a tv show on it right so i so, heard i've never seen it and it's actually really good it only lasted one season but in the tv show there's a reoccurring villain and he's also a time traveler and right. he's from the future Ah. So they're trying to catch somebody who's from the future, and he, they end up actually capturing him and and bringing him to their present and putting him in jail or whatever. And you know, you're watching it going, well, he's still going to mess up the future for him. It's not going to mess up your future, but it's going to mess up you know his future by him being in your prison in his past. You know what I mean? Right, right. And I just or really like – there's
1: that potential anyway.
0: Yeah, and I really liked that that. That concept that, you and know. And so they
1: acknowledge that?
0: Kind of, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a pretty good series. It yeah. had its faults, don't get me wrong. When you watch it, it you're going to be like, what was he talking about? But <laughs> it has enough good points in it that I would recommend watching. And it's only like 12 episodes long. It didn't last very long. Oh, not too bad. But it, it was worth it. It was good. But I just uh, like that idea because, you you know, like when they brought the whales to their present. Right, okay, that's your present, but you know, jump to Picard's time, and maybe the whales have you know destroyed the ecosystem on earth, you know buzzed <laughs> in, you know right, Earth had kind of balanced itself out without the whales, and then suddenly you introduce the whales again, and it throws everything off, you know, yeah. so well, they always have that idea. We can do whatever we want to now, but we just can't affect the past, but right, you right. are affecting the future,
1: yeah, but in reality, unless they did something. Really hokey, two whales you could not repopulate the uh, oceans. no, not enough genetic genetic diversity. all
0: right, you really oh, going to well. make this argument after you just told me Edith Keeler w- would be the reason why America wouldn't go to to war. you're going to make that argument with me Well, the one argument is based in biology. the other
1: argument is is based on on simple logic. <laughs> <laughs> No. So. No 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 no, but but the other thing that that's really that's true biologically. Are you in remember in Battlestar Galactica where
0: You get all your biology lessons from Battlestar Galactica?
1: No 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 you need a certain amount of biodiversity in a genetic pool for a viable species, you know, viable population. But that's part of well, I'm just I'm just I'm just alluding to the fifteen Hundred whatever number, or is that twelve thousand? Well, whatever it was, that uh, the president used to have up there on the on the on the whiteboard. What? Oh,
0: oh, In oh, Battlestar oh. Galactica. Battlestar Galactica. gotcha.
1: Right. Yeah. Right. You know that number. We can't fall below that number, or whatever. Right. Right. Anyway, so that was a uh, mega. Annual. And we still got one more. So anything more to say about it?
0: I do not. Excellent. All right. So we're ready to jump into Next Gen. Let's let's go to
1: the Next Gen world.
0: All right. So, uh, again, this is in two stories. Uh, So the first story is called Pandora's Prodigy. The writer is Michael DeMerit. Artist is Ricardo Villarán. Letterer is Willie... Schubert. Colorist is Pamela Rambo. Editor is Margaret Clark. So the cover shows Picard kind of gazing out at the viewer or the reader. Uh, One hand holds like a metallic box of some sort with some mysterious light coming out of it. And the other hand is kind of poised right above it. And you're not quite sure if Picard's going to snap it shut, or maybe open it up wider. And with the uh, title being called Pandora's Prodigy, uh, it's obviously a reference to Pandora's box. The story starts off with the Enterprise uh, about to reach research station Delta-6. Here, Picard will mediate between the leaders of two warring planets. While he is doing this, Jordy will spend some time with the transporter theoretical specialist at the station. While the main staff is preparing for the beaming of the planetary representatives, two mysterious human males are seen adjusting something in a panel in engineering. They are confident that he will not be able to resist visiting engineering, and that when he uses the panel, he will be vaporized. Once he is gone, they say that his seat at the Senate will be available. So we don't know who he is, but uh, we may have a pretty good idea. Or who these two guys are. Anyways, back in the transporter room, the first guest has arrived. He is a large blue-skinned male by the name of Commissioner Izura. Soon, the other arrives, and he is a human-looking male with blonde hair and a beard. His name is Senator Tan. Greetings are had by all. Urza informs Tan that he's heard that Tan has threats against his life by some of his own people. Tan says that this is true, but he has no worries while he's here on the Enterprise. Security then leads them away to their assigned quarters. Once everybody has left the transporter room, Jordy beams over a researcher named David Divi. The two of them are friends from way back in the academy days. After they reminisce a bit about uh, the old times, they get to work. On the bridge, Data informs the captain that there is a tiny power decrease. He cannot quite pinpoint where this is. And he says that in order to find it, he would have to manually look at 3,816 connections all across the ship. Riker jokes that the android should have this done by tomorrow. The next several pages of the book extend these three story points. One, Picard and the representatives meet several times about the looming war that nobody wants. Each side is... Sorry for all the problems that the other side has, but they cannot agree to any type of solution. Point number two, Jordy and David are working on their transporter enhancements. Uh, They actually start using old-style analog magnetic tape to actually record the exact makings of a subject so that they can then perhaps materialize that exact person again. Uh, much like a replicator does for Picard's Earl Grey. They are able to scan David, and it seems to be a success. Point number three is that Data continues his search of every panel for the possible leak or the energy siphon. He does have some help, which includes at least one of the two men that were rigging up the panel in engineering at the beginning of the story. With the negotiations at a standstill, Tan requests a tour of engineering. Picard agrees, and Urza comes along as well. David and Geordi are also working in engineering when they arrive. David, at that moment, is working on the rigged panel while Tan watches. The two saboteurs are there, and they try to stop David before he can touch the panel. But they're too late and he's fried and dematerializes completely. One of the saboteurs tries to throw a knife to kill Tan during all the commotion. But Tan is able to do something with an open palm and the man falls to the ground, dead. Perhaps he used the force to send the knife back at the thrower. I personally am not uh, sure what happened there. Anyways, the other saboteur raises his hand, and he gives up. Saddened by the loss of David, Jordy tries the transporter scan that they did earlier. It works, and there on the transporter pad is an exact clone of David. This David, almost immediately, seems to know exactly what has occurred, and he's very concerned that the information that they had proven is just too powerful. Now, people can create whole armies of clones. He says that he wants no part of it, and he leaves. This, him leaving, then puts the decision to Picard to decide whether to delete the data or to keep it and share it with others. He chooses to delete it. This knowledge would just be too powerful in the wrong hands. Tan and Azura watch and are both moved by Picard's decision. Later, the two representatives are able to work out very agreeable terms. If Picard would make the tough calls for peace, then so can they. The end <sighs> I'm sorry. Yes? Yes. You didn't care for that one? Ah uh, uh, Not too much. Did it seem familiar? Well, okay,
1: Hmm well, maybe you have something more specific in mind, but definitely the idea of interplanetary, um, you know, politics and diplomacy and all that kind of stuff is something we've seen from time to time in the Star Trek universe, especially in, in TNG. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm sorry, I know how important it must be, but I find it boring.
0: <laughs> sorry. Huh. So you must huh. not have liked all the trade federation negotiations in Star Wars Episode One. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, and maybe a few other things I didn't like in that. That right, movie. but I, no, I get what you're saying. It, it's the the Picard storyline. I really did not enjoy in this book. No, no, it was just it was a little boring. Sorry. And they gave the backstory of each
1: person, right? And then the fact that that picard because he's so cool and so important and he had to make such an important decision and then the other two two representatives of, of those two planets going oh we're nothing we're unimportant oh my god we need to get past all these petty things it's like oh yeah right Jeez, relax <laughs> i don't know it's just i think it's a little overdone
0: all Right, i agree now I did kind of like the idea of the clone army type thing. Well, uh which which yeah. we actually did very recently with yes. Malibu issue number deep uh the Malibu's Deep Space 9 issues 29 and 30 yep. which we did back in mm-hmm. episode 142. Right? Not that long ago at all. Yeah, where the Cardassians were trying to recreate the Thomas Riker accident so that yep. they could have an army.
1: Right, they could they could mimeograph a whole army of uh of Of their excellent best soldiers, yes,
0: right, so again, I like that idea, I liked it then, I like it now. It is kind of odd that these stories came out roughly around the same time, two different publishers though, so i 'll give that a pass versus versus the whole right peter's kids or the Peter and his brother's names <laughs> i won 't forgive that one right. Um,
1: now, now, mind you, the fact in this issue that they were able to achieve that, uh, mimea, that person copier, photocopier, mm-hmm. by using A track tapes, I thought <laughs> was uh, fascinating, and and, <laughs> and and no
0: wonder the Kardashians couldn't figure it out. <laughs> they
1: didn't have A track tapes.
0: Yeah, I didn't like that part. That's the one part of this I didn't didn't like. Yeah. And that David didn't seem like he knew what what he was talking oh, about. What you, do you know, they analog. No, oh,
1: there was a couple things that he okay. When he meets Data, uh, I'm sorry, Data. I'm not familiar with your race. It's like he's a robot. Uh-huh. <laughs> come on. Well, number okay. Even if you don't recognize somebody as a robot, come on, you're an engineer. I mean, you must have heard of Data. You right, know Data. You know, satient robot, positronic brain. If you're an engineer, you must have heard about him. I don't know. I agree.
0: Right. I had that complaint, too. I mean, there were
1: several things where if this guy was supposed to be on a par with Jordy, I mean, they were both came up, you know, they, they were both at the Academy at the same time, whatever. I mean, he was doing some bonehead
0: things. Right. And that's why I kept waiting for that to be the shoe that dropped. Right. Oh, this is not really David. This is some imposter exactly. or, or something. Exactly. I,
1: you know, like a Romulan imposture or something.
0: But uh, no, nope. that's not where they were going with it.
1: No, that isn't.
0: So, yeah. And, and you know, we've all used VHS tape. We know that there's absolutely <laughs> no possible to lose data on those things. <laughs> or to get a little wrinkle and so that now is, you know, comes Wait. out without a spleen or... Longer, exactly, something.
1: and you know, you know how those eight-track tapes, or maybe you don't, because you're so young. But those used to get, you know, all messed up in the rollers, in right. the in the players and stuff. It's like, no, you don't want to have somebody's pattern lost on a on an eight-track.
0: Yeah. yeah, and I just don't see how. I mean, the whole reason why he thought about using the uh, the tape was for storage uh, space. Yes. Uh, So you you have all these digital hard drives. You're saying that you could make enough tape to have the same amount of data storage as, you know...
1: As more than what the Enterprise? You know? (laughs) Well, yeah, okay. So there wasn't enough space on the Enterprise computer or in Data's positronic brain or maybe in other places... There's just not enough digital storage available to hold somebody's pattern. and But you're going to be able to do it on some kind of magnetic
0: tape. Right. So how much tape did they make? I mean, they must have <laughs> filled the whole enterprise with this stupid tape. Yeah. For one person. Yeah.
1: And, 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 and you know, really, it what it comes down to is resolution. Because I remember cassette tapes. Mm-hmm. I don't, don't know if you use them much because you are a little oh. bit younger than me.
0: I lived on cassette tapes.
1: Okay, so I lived on cassette tapes too when I was, in, you know, twelve years old and sixteen or whatever. And at some point, I switched over to CDs in early college days. And uh, and boy, I was better. But the big thing is, you can you can store a h- much more information about the music. I mean, it's not only it's di- it's not only digital, but you can store more data on those wonderful CDs, which gave way to. Hard drives and that kind of stuff eventually, but you know, part of the, I mean, analog technology is okay as far as it goes, but the resolution isn't there, and that's right. part of the reason, part of many one of many reasons why CDs completely swept that analog stuff out the door. Right. So, I, I do not believe. So what they're saying here is the thing that kept you from replicating people is you never could have enough. Storage space. Right. Um, and I, I do not see really how uh, an analog approach would help you with that unless you had huge amounts of recording medium. Right. And, yeah, just, uh, just so. a
0: huge cassette tape as big as the Enterprise. Just <laughs> floating there by the by the exactly, station. Exactly, exactly. Right. And, and hope that there's never a little kink in it that then causes it to deravel.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, you just can't think too much about this stuff. It's all made up. So well. I just would have liked them not to have had those few panels about the analog. Just cut that out. Right. And it would have been great. Yep. So,
1: uh, what do you think about the art work?
0: Boy, some of it looked good, and then all of a sudden, some other some pages looked really different. And I even well, went back to make sure that it was the same author. Off- uh, the same artist throughout and it is but yeah well man, sometimes it, it was really odd
1: yeah and i don't know whether that's the inker and how they're doing shadows and stuff or whether it's all the penciler i, I i'm not quite sure but um well, although, there's
0: no there's no inker on this one it was just oh the,
1: it's just the art okay so the, the one guy did both or one mm-hmm. person did both right oh i see ricardo yep well um i i'm not a fan I didn't think it was that good. Uh, I mean, it was okay, but some of the it's like the shadowings and stuff. I mean, Riker looks like Wolverine at the top of page eleven.
0: <laughs> yeah, little wolf man, like exactly.
1: And then you know the headshot. I mean, there's some headshots of Picard in there, which I think is just plain not appealing. It just I I think the shadowing is not good at all. I mean, heavy use of like dots and stuff, right? To kind of make or li- little short, you know, whatever, however they did it, uh, I'm just not a fan.
0: Yeah, I agree. I, I did not like the uh, the dot look. Right when it was overdone, because
1: like you say, there are other panels that look really good, but at the t- oh oh my god, it's a horrible one of Picard at On the top six. of is that page six? I, mean, I uh, probably yes, exactly. The top right panel of page six, I, oh, uh, I don't like that at all of the card.
0: No, that's actually where I went back. That was the panel that made me go back and look to see if the there was multiple artists on the book. Right, right, and there wasn't. It, well, artistic,
1: artistic decision,
0: but whatever. Yeah that that picture that frame makes me think that it was a picture from a different panel. And that he just blew it up, right? Uh-huh. So I mean, if you actually look at page, what would it be? It would be page eight. It's not labeled, but it's mm-hmm. it shows Riker standing there, face to face with Picard. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if this is this picture of Picard is the same one on page six, just blown up, oh. and because it didn't have a lot of detail because it was a far away shot, that that's why it looks as bad as it does. Because they're mm. almost in the exact position, same facial expression. Just yeah, yeah. I, I don't know, but uh, uh, I don't know. But it's it's not good. No, no. Oh, well, um, it will. That picture there will definitely make the uh, cover art of the episode.
1: <laughs> I mean, not and not necessarily because it's good, but because it really stands out. It's very unique. Yes. And, and and make sure you get Werewolf uh, Riker.
0: <laughs> Werewolf Riker. I'll do that.
1: <laughs> anyway. Yeah, that's all I have on that one. Uh, same here. Yeah.
0: Uh, like I said, didn't care for the Picard story, and I the data story was all just scooting around the ship. The clone story was good, but except for the analog part. Mm-hmm. All right, so the next story is entitled Old Debts. And its writer is Kevin J. Ryan. Penciler is Ken Save. Mm -hmm. Inker is Shepard Hendricks. Letterer, Ken Lopez. Colorist, Pam Rambo. And editor is Margaret Clark. So we get none other than Montgomery Scott finishing a pleasant subspace chat with Geordie LaForge. Once they sign off, Scotty is, uh, through his thoughts or his logs or whatever it is, uh, we find out that he's uh, scooting around the galaxy in one of the old Enterprise D's shuttlecrafts. And Scotty thinks to himself that he likes the little craft because it can do most of the flying for itself, and that leaves him time to tinker with whatever he wants to. Soon, the small craft arrives at Starbase 122, also known as the Fleet Museum. Around the space station, we see several ships that seem to be in dry dock with the huge like ribcage thing over them. The shuttlecraft is heading right towards the most famous one, the NCC-1701A Enterprise. On the view screen, the station's commander welcomes Scotty on his arrival and tells Scotty that he will have an escort when he arrives on the Enterprise. Scotty is a little taken aback that uh, he's going to have to have an escort on his own ship, but the commander insists. Upon landing, Scotty is greeted by Robin Leffler. She has left her post on the Enterprise D and is now working here at the Fleet Museum. They visit Scotty's old quarters, which Robin has had decorated in the style that Scotty would have once kept, including a set of bagpipes on the wall. The tour continues throughout engineering. Scotty keeps asking about the amount of power the ship has, and could it run, and how much of the original ship is left. It seems a little suspicious, almost like the old-timer is planning to break her out of her current imprisonment. Leffler does not pick up on these vibes, and she answers all of his questions with a smile. The station commander calls in to inform Scotty that uh, he's going to be leaving off-duty soon, and that Scotty and Leffler will be on their own until 0900. As soon as the commander hangs up, the alarm klaxons start to blare. Sensors read that a Klingon bird of prey is decloaking. Scotty asks if this is a simulation. Leffler assures him that it is not. Scotty tells Leffler that they will have to move the Enterprise out of dry dock to avoid the the Klingons. Before he can get the engines online, the bird of prey fires and everything goes back to normal. It was a simulation after all. On screen, however, Scotty watches the simulation play out where the Enterprise is destroyed while in the embrace of Dry Duck. Then, Koloth, the Klingon that we all know and love, appears on the screen. He is the old, bumpy-headed version, the kind that we saw in Deep Space Nine. And he still hates Scotty for that time that Scotty beamed over all those damn tribbles to his ship. Koloth has set up this trap this very complicated trap, in order to satisfy one of his last outstanding debts that he has. He tells Scotty that there is a bomb planted within the dilithium reaction chamber, and it will detonate in five minutes. Now, with the time ticking, Scotty and Leffler make their way to engineering via Jeffrey's tubes. Once there, they are locked out of engineering. Scotty then opens a secret compartment in the wall. There, he pulls out an old-style phaser, and he blasts the lock off. Once inside, he takes the explosive and puts it into the inter-matrix chamber. When it explodes, they are able to harness this energy and perform a cold start of the warp engines. Koloth then chimes in again through the communications, and he says that he's surprised that the humans are still alive. However, he says that he has other traps for them. Scotty is able to disconnect the internal sensors so that Koloth can no longer hear them. Leffler states that Koloth must be in the auxiliary control room. Scotty then scans nearby space and finds a cloaked ship attached to one of the ports. Now that they know where Koloth is and where he needs to go to escape, they then plan a trap of their own. Scotty sets up the ship to engage full impulse, and he also turns off the inertial dampeners. That means that once the ship moves, every living thing inside will become goo on the wall. The two wait near Koloth's ship. Soon... The Klingon comes running once he figured out what was about to happen. A fight ensues between Koloth and Scotty, and it ends at a stalemate, with both of them pointing phasers set to kill at each other. Koloth makes his way back to his ship, and he leaves, saying that he's going to avenge the death of his firstborn son. Once gone, Scotty starts to repair all the things that they broke during their encounter with the Klingon. Before the station commander returns the end Scotty, you are a spry old guy, man.
1: you can get into a fist fight with an old Klingon
0: Woof. well technically Scotty's a lot younger than that Klingon
1: I know, but he's still a Klingon Klingons are pretty strong guys
0: now who's being a uh, racist or speciist you just species. I am generalizing. generalizing. All I am
1: generalizing. <laughs> Klingons can kick humans butt. Well, normal. Well, that this is a nice light little story. I mean, right. they 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 even make references to the nice light little uh, you know, Tribble the way the Trouble with Tribbles episode ended. Um, right. which I always thought was cruel to Those, the Tribbles. To the Tribbles. Those Klingons are going to blast them. Anyway, Think, think it through, folks. It's not quite as pretty as you think. Anyway, so it was nice and light. You know, you couldn't take this one too seriously.
0: Right. And then I liked when Koloth leaves. He, he does mention that, you know, basically he's going to Deep Space Nine to yes. go do his adventure to yes. kill the albino. Right, without exactly. coming out and saying it. I thought that the was albino, cool. yeah. Right.
1: Yeah, so that was a nice tie-in to the Deep Space Nine episode. Uh, it was nice seeing uh, what Leffler, Leafler, whatever. Right. Um, so that was a tie-in to uh, TNG when she and Boy Genius were a number, were an item.
0: Right. And I really liked, and I and I unfortunately left it out of the synopsis. I really liked when she mentions that she thought he and she thought they were together, and then all of a sudden he runs off with Traveler, and so she's kind of like, you know. How do I take that kind of thing? And and right. I really like I liked that uh, that little nod.
1: Yeah. So she thought they were going to be together in the long run. Well, guess not.
0: Right. Which which kind of makes I mean, at, when I first saw her pop up, I was a little perturbed because I was like, well, this doesn't make sense because, you know, in in all the stories I know of Leffler, she's on the Enterprise, and then from the Enterprise she goes to the Excalibur with Captain Calhoun. Mm-hmm. You know, I ne- I never really thought that there might have been a in between time. Right. But this this doesn't necessarily contradict that. I mean, she could have gone to the station thing for a while after the whole Wesley thing blew up and then mm-hmm. maybe after <clears throat> these events she goes and joins up with Calhoun. Right. Apparently. Right. In in some continuities maybe. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I like that. I like the little nod to her and Wesley. I mean, that, that's one thing that they've kind of been doing along the Deep Space, or not, sorry, along the Next Generation stories is that every once in a while, Cr- Beverly Crusher would talk about Wesley and Leffler being together. Right. So I thought this was a nice end to that story. Yeah. It was good. I liked that part.
1: Yeah. Speaking of nice endings, how do you like the last page? The last mega panel?
0: Uh, where it shows, like, a ambassador class ship, and Enterprise A, and a, a uh, Excelsior, Excelsior class ship. Uh,
1: All right, Excelsior class.
0: Excelsior class.
1: Yes. Which obviously, I I'm saying it's uh, Enterprise uh, B and C. Well, C, you know, got destroyed. I know, I know the problem with that, with that, but I'm saying it's Enterprise C and B.
0: <laughs> it could well, be. The, it they, could be they, the Excalibur coming to pick up Leffler because wasn't that <laughs> an Ambassador Class ship? It was Ambassador Class ship, yes. But so,
1: I, so they rebuilt it for the museum. <laughs> Enterprise, that's Enterprise C. So
0: I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I had a very, very, very hard time enjoying the story because of the Enterprise A being there because so many of the novels. Make reference to Enterprise A being destroyed right before the Enterprise B is commissioned. So after Star Trek VI, you know they're going to be mothballed or whatever. Mm-hmm. There is novels where Kirk and Company end up, you know, stealing her, taking her out again, I almost know. like they did in Star Trek Three. Yep, yep, and she doesn't make it back. Right, And there's so much stuff after that that makes reference to the Enterprise actually being destroyed that I had a hard time with this story, acknowledging that this is not in that continuity. Well,
1: I had no problem with that because I've never read those books. So,
0: yeah. Well, ironically enough, and this is, again, DC Comics maybe not having the best editors at this time. Uh huh. <laughs> 1995. They did an adaptation of Ashes of Eden. Oh boy. Guess what happens in Ashes of Eden? The Enterprise blows up. It's big deal.
1: It's they did. it's a novel, it's a comic book, whatever.
0: It's all supposed to co- it's supposed to be cohesive, Ken co- <laughs> Universe. <laughs>
1: There's so much going on that you know it isn't. And this I is a this is a perfect example of why it isn't to be. Yes, well.
0: Dang it! Dang it! <laughs> I was able to get past that, but but uh, when when he flew up to the Enterprise, I was like, no, it can't be the Enterprise.
1: <laughs> yes, it can be, and and they can have fully charged phase old phasers from the late movie days uh, that that Scotty can pull out and use when he needs to, and uh, yeah.
0: It's, all, it's all a blast Trek, from the past. That was just a Star Trek V phaser, wasn't it?
1: Um I think they used that style a couple times towards the end. Uh oh, okay. I am not sure you know obviously they did not use that in the motion picture. They did not use that in Wrath of Khan. Um I think I think the third film, Search for Spock, I think that's the first time they use that style.
0: Oh really? Okay. I, I thought it was just in five.
1: No, no, no. actually, five, didn't Five use uh, the assault phaser?
0: Isn't that what this is?
1: No, that's not an assault phaser. Oh, okay. But, and I know my phasers.
0: I know you did, and, and that's why I wanted to have this conversation with you.
1: Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that Yeah, that looks like the normal kind of more traditional look after they were messing around with all these other experimental oh, okay. shapes and they got back to something a little more in alignment with the original TV series. Okay. Which I love. I, I really don't like the Wrath of Khan phaser.
0: I'd have to look at it. I don't really remember what it looks like. You? It looks like a
1: big Type 1 phaser, an overgrown Type 1 phaser with a handle stuck on it.
0: Okay. You don't like that? No. But okay. My opinion. So they're on page 47 and 48 when Scotty gets the phaser and shoots the the lock off the door. Right. Were you confused as far as the order got of the panels that I'm supposed to be reading? Oh, yeah. Because the top of the panel, the top of the page, it's a two page spread. Yep. The top shows Scotty shooting down onto the next page, which is right. the lock. Right. And then the panels below, you know, show Scotty finding a phaser. And yeah. if you read them in order, well, Scotty's already shooting a phaser. Why is he finding another one? I was really yeah. confused as to what was going on.
1: Yeah. Yeah, well, you, you know, in some ways, well, okay, so is the big two-page thing where he's shooting the, the, the lock, is that supposed to be the last thing you read?
0: I think it's but supposed then, to be the third thing you read. I think you're supposed to I read agree. the two panels on the bottom of page 47. I, I agree. I then agree. that agree. one, and then and all the other Then other, the other one on
1: 48. Right. right. Which is weird. So, you know, I'm going to go ahead and let it, let it slide, the fact that, that there happens to be a fully charged phaser sitting there for Scotty, and he knows where to look for it. Well, of course. It's his ship. Well. He, he put in that A, long, a, long, a long time past. Okay, so this is supposed to be an old phaser, the stash, back when he was the engineer? Mm-hmm. Yep. And no one found it over all these years?
0: Nope, because he hid it that he's well. Scotty. He's Scotty. Because it wasn't on any of the original blueprints. <laughs> well,
1: he said at the beginning, we were upgrading this thing since the first day we got it. Constantly upgrading.
0: Right, which explains why he hits his head on the bulkhead on, pay- on Star Trek V. Who put that there? <laughs> yeah, I-, I had a lot of thoughts on Star Trek V while I was reading this, unfortunately. The, the comedy aspects were... Scotty doesn't know the ship, you know. He makes the comment, "I know the ship as well as the, my backhand," and then he falls onto something. Right, right. So, a lot of the comments he's making here, then I'm like, "All right, now fall on something, Scotty." Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got a question
1: for you. Sure. So, in the TNG episode Relics, Yep. did 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 his. I mean, I know he had kind of like the red uniform and stuff, but the particular style of his uniform in this comic is a little different. I think uh, the the way the way the tunic's kind of cut. I mean, it's the old fashioned kind of one that kind of flips over, right? You know, so that's kind of cool. But it seems like it's lower cut. It's like, uh, and, right. it, it, and and then then the uh, the pads on the shoulders, right. I don't remember that being there exactly, but uh, but it does look just a little different in the cut. I
0: agree, it looks different.
1: So is is that what they had in the TNG episode? I don't I think mean, so. Okay, because I don't I don't recognize this. I mean, this the subtle changes I don't recognize from that uh, Relics episode.
0: Yeah, I don't remember the shoulder pads thing. I mean, he I think he was wearing some sort of tunic, but it right. didn't necessarily look like a Starfleet tunic. Okay which made me always kind of wonder it, they call him captain scott but is he is he a captain within the inter, within the federation Starfleet. or did he retire and he's the captain of his own ship i was never quite sure watching and reading the book uh the book no, the novelization of the episode oh uh, what exactly uh he was captain of before oh. he disappeared yeah i guess i assumed it was a federation ship but i
1: also his His exact status was a little hard to figure out.
0: Right. Well, they kind of act like he's here. Definitely, they act like he was captain in Starfleet. In Starfleet. Right. But for whatever reason, I thought that he was retired. Yeah. When he before he disappeared.
1: Right. Well, maybe it's one of those honorary things. Once you're a captain, you're always captain.
0: Right. Once you're president, you're always always call you president. (laughs) Whatever. Sure. But here it seems like he has status. I mean, it's so it it's like he's active, you know. Even though he yeah. just has a little shuttlecraft, but right.
1: And by the way, so Picard just gives away shuttlecrafts? Guess so. Because whatever time period this is between one, relics episode and when this happened, I mean, he's still tooling around in a in an Enterprise D shuttlecraft. I mean, you can see on the back of the shuttlecraft, mm-hmm. it's definitely. You didn't get it for someplace else. That is a Enterprise D shuttlecraft.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Which
1: I thought was interesting.
0: Yeah, I thought it was weird. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um I thought the col coloth just just being allowed to leave, I thought was rather odd. But it's like, okay, whatever. You know, okay, so they were both, you know, they would kill each other. But it's like, okay. I'm leaving. You're a great opponent, Scotty,
0: and I'm leaving. Tough. <laughs> I thought
1: that was a little. little yeah, lazy, I, agree. I
0: agree. I agree. I expected like some sort of parting shot, right? <laughs> but I guess he had to hurry up and turn off the impulse engines before he became goo on the side of the bo- on the side of the wall. <laughs> I like when you said that because that's
1: what it would have happened. Yes. Yes. Yes, without the magical – without the magic
0: of inertial dampeners, yeah,
1: you'd lose a whole crew. Right.
0: (laughs) Which I think is hilarious when in the show they say they've lost inertial dampeners or something, and I'm like, well, then you can't move or stop. I mean if you're in motion when they go off, you can never stop. Right. Because even slowing down, everybody's slamming into the wall. Yep. Everybody's dead. You just killed everybody.
1: Yep, or you get hit.
0: Because you sure as hell don't have seatbelts right
1: exactly <laughs> or uh you know getting hit by a phaser blast or something right. or a torpedo blast that would probably shake the co- the the ship and move it physically enough that you'd all be you know blood splatters on the wall yeah. exactly so
0: many ways to die <laughs> so uh, my big problem with koloth is
1: how Why the, is he bumpy?
0: How did he know that Scotty was oh. coming here? How oh, did yeah. he set up this huge, elaborate trap that was? You well, know, it reminded me of Saul, where he's just, "I'm gonna send you on all these little quests." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you, he was scheduled to do the, uh,
1: you know, to do the speech, so he might that might have been worked out ahead of time, scheduled ahead of time, public knowledge, maybe. But I completely agree with you. I mean I mean just I'm just I'm just saying there are some things that might make a little sense, but I completely agree with you this is too elaborate. Right.
0: Yeah. And if he's on the ship and he doesn't know for sure that Scotty's going to be able to turn that bomb off, why is he still on the ship? Yeah. yeah all right, Scotty, you have 5 minutes to de- deactivate the bomb. I would be gone. Yeah, or, or at least do something like Saw, you know,
1: where the guy <laughs> knows everything, and he's like, he's anywhere. Right. He's even on the ground in front of you, but he's got all this stuff going on, and, you know, maybe you could do that from a shuttle,
0: from a safe distance. Exactly. That's what he should have been. Exactly. I, I was really surprised when she said he was on the ship, and I'm like, what? Yeah. Makes no sense.
1: Plus, how did he get in there undetected? Ooh, sensor shadows or something. Whatever. Yeah,
0: well, he was able to fool the whole, the whole. Uh, you know, he he was able to cut him off completely from the the commu- the space station. So right, he's a, and, he, he's very advanced in his trickery. And not you ain't which, kidding. Which Klingons are all well known for, right? Well, uh, computer and,
1: savvy. Exactly. I Me mean, trickery, maybe, but uh, this guy is doing some pretty. Pretty impressive technical stuff to make all this happen.
0: Which we all know Klingons are very good at. Well. They pride themselves on their computer hacking skills, right? Exactly. Oh, no, they don't. I was being stereotypical again. Klingons should not know anything about computers. All they know is how to kill people with batlets. Exactly. That's the way it should be. But apparently somebody has to build those ships.
1: Somebody has to build those ships. And apparently they're good enough
0: that Uh Romulans buy them. (laughs) Those are damn good ships. (laughs) Apparently so. Uh, All right. I think that was my last comment on this story. Yeah. I don't really
1: have anything else either. So
0: So before we close up altogether, I would like to reopen uh, the last story and ask you how did that one saboteur die with the knife he reaches into his boot he pulls out the knife he's about to throw it or maybe had thrown it at, i thought at tan and then tan just reaches out his hand and the guy's dead so what happened yeah that's a really good question yeah because it looks like
1: um i i, I thought wharf had done something at least that would have made more sense but it's like uh they don't show you I mean, completely right. So the guy takes his knife out. He looks like he's going to attack one of the two alien guys. Well, probably the uh, the tan guy, whatever. And right. uh, and then exactly right. Somebody has a hand outstretched, and and it seems like somebody has magic powers of telekinesis and knocks the guy unconscious. Now, was that Worf? I, I thought it was Tan, but. Well, maybe. because look, look at the hand. The hand looks like a dark hand, a dark right. man's hand. It could have
0: been a shadow, but yeah, it could be Worf, but what's he uh, It's got to be Worf. Worf doesn't have the force. Well, maybe he did his
1: typical Worf, uh, open, palmed, you know. You know,
0: how Worf does <laughs> that. And the guy's flying back that far? I mean, he's, he's a Klingon. still a good distance away. He's a Klingon. Uh, I don't buy that one well
1: i'm trying i'm trying to make it work donovan <laughs>
0: i'm
1: i'm playing i've got my donovan hat on i'm trying to make it
0: work. Uh, i just say tan is a is a is a closet jedi and he just force blasted him <laughs> he used the force yeah could be could be all right i just wanted to check with you to see if maybe i missed something no, know, no no it's know. another
1: one it's another one where somebody had to make a deadline and it didn't all make sense, you know, maybe there was an extra panel they had to cut out because they couldn't fit everything i don't know, but i'm saying I'm saying that's Worf's hand
0: all right, all right, good, okay, all right, well, then that's it for this episode. Uh, we will be back next week, episode one fifty two where we uh, take another break from. This era, and we're going to do the IDW ongoing cool. issues number 26 27 and 28: Yes, we get to revisit the Kitamura conflict uh, is that the story?
1: that's the storyline story That's right because
0: we were in the middle of we were in the middle of that last uh, last episode 143 when we when we covered 23 24
1: and 25: uh, I didn't know the episode number, but right we were just starting that big
0: conflict, right. Right, and we don't know who that mysterious Section Thirty-One woman is. I do. Oh, you've already read them? No, I don't. No, I. I oh, told you, you my theory before. Oh, okay, okay. You and I still think I'm
1: right. You don't know. You. Think. I don't. I know. Oh, I know. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going I'm to feel really bad if I'm wrong on
0: that. <laughs> But I don't think I am. Well, next week, we will know for sure. Yeah. I hope. I hope we know for sure. Well, they if could they, stretch it out. If you they know, drag but... it out, it's just like, a. Yeah, but I anyways. Haven't,
1: I haven't gotten, what, 29 yet? Or 28 yet. 28, right. But I got 20, 27 in my hand right here.
0: It's a pretty well, cool cover. Something to look forward to, everybody. All right. Okay. We'll it's run cool out cover. to the comic book shop. pick it up, Ken. So we'll be ready next week. Okay, Donovan. I, I, I will do. I will be. Okay. All right. Sounds good. So, uh, all right. With that, we'll let you go. And thanks for uh, joining us again. Yes, we appreciate it. Thanks, everyone,
1: for joining us on The Review. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music, stories, and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at star-t-comicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes. Or friend us on Facebook at First Name, ST Comic, Second Name, Book Review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.